And we're back. Hello, folks. It is Aaron Pennerberg here with All Things HEMA. You are listening now to me on a brand new uh, LAV mic. So I have not listened to the quality yet, uh, but I assume it's going to be better. I appreciate the anonymous gift from whoever this was, but um, I have received a lot of complaints regarding the audio audio uh, quality, and um, this is a solution, and I appreciate it. So thanks, whoever that was. Uh, also, it came with two mics, so we can plug these things together, and my guests can now be mic'd up as well, uh, and that's exciting news. So now I don't have to like motion to them to speak up. Um, so that's cool. Uh, I appreciate all the feedback and positive comments regarding this podcast. Um, I've wanted to do this for a long time and hearing some of the other podcasts out there regarding HEMA, I thought they're all, you know, really well done, lots of quality and stuff. Um, I just feel like I have a lot to say regarding these, uh, these situations and these, um, parameters within HEMA. And I have a lot that, I always want to address. I don't seem to have the time to talk to people during the events um, because, you know, we're always in such a compressed format, either fighting or, you know, getting ready to fight or judging or whatever it might be. So we don't get a chance really to talk about stuff. So this is kind of part of the reason why I did this podcast. In addition, um, I have a lot of interesting uh, associates and connections and contacts. And over the next, you know, year or so, I'll be talking with those individuals and uh, making them known uh, to you all out there, uh, especially talking a lot of these topics up and uh, just getting some feedback. So just a few things. Again, the sponsors, um, another shout out to Albion Swords, of course, uh, talk about them every podcast, but essentially their swords are amazing. And uh, we sure do appreciate everything that Albion's doing. Um, I have an Albion Kriegs Messer. Uh, it's a Langs Messer, actually, a long Messer that's, I think, one of the last ones or was the last one that was produced by Albion. And for anyone who has not uh, wielded a Kriegs Messer yet, oh my gosh, I'm going to talk about a weapon of destruction. This thing is incredible. I did have a chance to uh, do some test cutting. Yes, Antatami. Yes, I do that. Yes, I do uh, explore it and enjoy it from time to time. Um, so, yeah, Albion, their Kriegsmesser, their Messers, um, their swords in general are just incredible. You can see it out there when uh, just about everybody who's doing well in these cutting competitions and such um, either has an Albion or is familiar with Albions. Um, so that tells you something. So again, Albion, Mike Sigmund, thanks a lot. Uh, Mike was just at the SoCal sword fight over there, um, showing the wares. And I'm sure everyone had a chance to see that kind of quality and that kind of commitment. You know, Mike makes it to a lot of the, ma the main, uh, the big events and um, tries to go to some of the other smaller ones too. In addition to all the different cons out there. So Mike's on the road quite a bit. And um, I'll be seeing him soon at our uh, HFA, the Historical Fencing Affiliation Leadership Conference, which just generally is a, is a quick plug for that, I suppose. You know, um, the, these leadership conference ideas are, I think, going to be in the future very important in terms of the development of HEMA in general. 
the HFA has done it now several times, and basically we just get everybody together in New Glarus, which is where Albion is located, um, and we kind of take over this uh, the chalet house, um, and we uh, it's a inn, it's like a hotel, the chalet land house, I think it's called. We take that over and um, just have like roundtable discussions about different leadership issues or different issues of leading clubs, etc. I know there was a leadership conference that was put together, I think, um, recently for some of the other HEMA clubs out there. And I haven't heard much about that, but I'm sure it was a success. It's one of those things that, you know, in when you conceptualize that type of thing, it's like, eh, you know, that might be fun, it might not. What are we going to talk about? And then when you get everybody in the room, all of a sudden all these awesome ideas are floating around and people get a chance really to spend some quality time fleshing out this stuff. Just like a podcast, you know, you can do long form and uh, have larger discussions about all these things. But um, I'm getting off track a little bit from the sponsors. But uh, I basically just wanted to shout out to Albion and thank Mike for everything he does. So moving on, also Advocare. Uh, Again, a uh, buddy of mine, Gary Lewis, um, you can reach him at G Lewis, that's G-L-E-W-I-S, 9221 at gmail.com. He's uh, an Advocare um, um, distributor, and he uh, really highly re- recommends the Spark um, product, which is, like I said, a uh, pre-workout drink, has a little bit of caffeine in it, a bunch of vitamins, minerals. I use it quite a bit. Um, it's great in the place of like a cup of coffee or something, which can be kind of nasty before a workout. Um, and I really like that product quite a bit. And then uh, O2 Gold, which is also another um, sports performance drink. So Advocare and uh, I suppose Advocare Care of Gary Lewis. Um, thank you for your sponsorship. There's a couple other sponsors that actually I turned down because, um, frankly, I'm not in this to make money. I'm not in this uh, to just tout a bunch of sponsors that I don't really know in terms of their quality products or not. You know, it's one of those things where I'm going to kind of do what I want and not be beholden to any sponsorships ideas of what I should be doing. Um, I have had many people, as well as some of these sponsors, talk about me uh, taking this this material and editing it and uh, putting some you know music and stuff into it and making a little bit more um, edited and polished product and I'm I'm not going to do that because I prefer to do this in a very open way and a very organic way especially when I have guests on um, I think it's more important for for this kind of podcast to feel like you know you are present in the room during the conversation and kind of have a sense for everything that's um, that's kind of going on as it happens. You know, that's the way conversations occur. Now, there are plenty of podcasts out there that I myself listen to that are polished and edited and they're fine, um, like history podcasts and things like that. It's it's cool that they polish those up, but something like a, you know, Joe Rogan kind of idea where it's just unedited and um, it's kind of out there for you to, to listen to as it happens. I really kind of wanted that kind of format versus anything else. So a number of people have also reached out to me with those kind of skills to offer their services for free um, and just to help me out, and I really appreciate that. Um, so the next the next piece of this conversation, um, and I alluded to it just a little bit, I just kind of touched on it, and that is like the cutting aspects. I just want to make a few more points, and then we'll move on, and we're going to address a question regarding abandoning Lichtenauer. 
uh, in the all things HEMA question and answer period. But essentially, so, you know, regarding edges, it's kind of a tricky subject, right? But, but I do have in my hand right now an Italian saber um, circa like 1850. And as you look at that edge, right, this edge is not finely polished. This edge has almost these serrations in it, probably from the sharpening stone. Like this is still the edge, I think, the original edge that was on there. It certainly appears that way. I mean, it is, it is sharp. Uh, there are nicks in it. And uh, you can definitely see these uh, very, very clear, very um, distinct serrations along the edge as if, like I said, it was a, probably put on a stone. And I'm also aware of a number of historical examples of European longswords, which uh, kind of have a similar, a similar finish to them. And they're not really sure if, if they were redone. You know, if these are original edges, it's almost impossible to tell. But um, it's one of those topics that, you know, it's hard to really determine what kind of edge historically was put on uh, a European longsword. You can definitely tell that in some cases... Uh, they're a little bit more polished, and in some cases, they're a little bit less. It depends on, I suppose, the geometry of the of the form of the weapon, uh, what it's being used for. And also, you can never discount like individual preferences of particular warriors, particular soldiers, etc. It's one of those things where it's almost like there wasn't a council or committee that decided what kind of edge they were going to put on each weapon. You know, you would have some... Um, some discernment, you know, not to mention like whatever you had access to. So who knows? But the point is like at the end of the day, these large hewing blows against the Tommy, they're great. You know, it's fun. It's, um, it's pretty neat, but you know, it's not very historical, uh, you know, point to a manual or something, a manuscript that says it, you know, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is I am getting still some guff from people who are like, well, you know, you're crabby against uh, cutting and stuff. And, you should uh, rethink your your formula, and I'm like, hey man, you know, back off because I I already said like, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's clearly teaching you things, right? But my only concern is what things are, is it teaching you, and are those things historical? And I'm this I'm thinking to myself like, ah, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite convinced myself. Some of these guys who are and women, frankly, who are great at cutting. They're cutting in such a way that they're like completely, you know, abandoning a lot of the historical technique that we're taught as far as keeping ourselves closed, right? Closing lines, all that kind of stuff. Um, they're cutting all the way through the, the target, which is what you need to do if you're trying to create those large, long hewing blows against the Tommy and make sure that um, you're, you're getting all the way through. So, you know... I'm, I'm not saying it's it's bad. I'm just saying, like, be careful. That's all. You know, imagine, and I'm surprised at the blowback, frankly, for this kind of statement out there amongst all of you in HEMA. Because imagine if I came up with, uh, oh, I'm going to do the, uh, the the snap blow, right? And, and this snap blow is going to be something I just created. And uh, it doesn't exist in any manuscript. And it's actually like the form of it is like sort of okay. But, you know, it consists of me starting with my back facing my opponent and then I'm going to, you know, stab the sword through the middle of my legs underneath and then jump over my own sword with one of my legs and then end up facing the opponent. And it's going to be like a sort of somersault kind of activity. And that, that's all I'm going to teach my people. And that's how we're going to fight. And let's say we get amazingly good at it. And we're like super athletic at it and, it. and occasionally we end up like winning some tournaments and shit with that. It's like, you know, what are you going to say to me? 
I know what you're going to say to me. You're all going to be, you know, going nuts and being like, oh, that's not in any manuscript. You know, what the heck are you teaching? And, you know, I'll write a book about it and I'll tell you about how awesome that snap kick maneuver is, you know, and then you, everyone will be like, well, that's, you know, fine and all. It's athletic and it's working in some tournaments, but it's just not historical, you know. So that's my point, I suppose, at the end of the day. And uh, for now, I really don't want to get more more into that. But that's, you know, that's something to consider. It's something to think about. Um, lastly, I suppose, you know, on this topic is, um, so we have like a cutting event sometimes at, that uh, Jeremiah Bachhaus, um, the Alaska Forge and Fireman, um, he puts together. And he always has like hogs that we cut on with our long swords and stuff or with anything really. And uh, one of the things we start working on is if, uh, okay, we're doing zverks, you know, quick twitching and stuff like that, or these, these, these quicker kind of from the wrist uh, and, and elbow actions, you know, carrying through with our waist and stepping and everything that you're supposed to do. But they're not these hewing large blows, you know, that you do on the Tommy. And I know people draw cut into Tommy and all that kind of stuff. But I'm saying, like, generally they're doing, they're being taught, like, to cut through to Tommy properly. Right? You want to start uh, with your sword in a certain position. You want to cut all the way through with all your bones in line. And you want to have all this kind of stuff. And don't move your feet because it's dangerous. You might cut into yourself. All these kind of parameters that are um, extra, right? that are added in. Um, well, we're not doing that with the, with the hog. We're just cutting the way we're supposed to cut uh, in terms of what we think, right? As far as the historical manuals and, and whatnot, what we see in tournaments and, and uh, pressure testing and all that kind of stuff. And we're seeing these, these blows. We're seeing these wounds. We're seeing these cuts occurring. Um, and they are not like these massive hewing cuts all the way through, you know, the, the carcass. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I understand that. I'm just saying like... You know, cutting through the tatami tells you some things, but it's not really telling you everything, right? You have to t take all that into account. So for those people that keep emailing me and, uh, you know, wanting to discuss all this with me, look, just do your own thing and enjoy it and just understand I'm saying to you, like, look, man, just be careful, right? Just be careful. Just think about it. Okay? Fine. All right, well... That's that's all well and good. Time for a little drink of beer quick. Hold on. Okay. So, now we're moving on to a question which I received. And I've been uh I've had this question for some time and I've been kind of considering it, thinking about it because it could get into a lot of areas which I'm really not wanting to get into. But at the at the same time, it's a great question as far as Individual practitioners, when they initially get into HEMA, and then as they progress throughout their career, you know, throughout their hobby, throughout their passion, throughout their martial art, however, however it is you might look at it, it's one of those things that if you're in the wrong environment, or if you're in an environment which doesn't see it the way you're wanting to take it, it can be kind of a, a problem, and I've seen it happen many times. So what am I talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is this. This question, uh, and he said I could use his name. Okay, this question comes from Matthew Cordum. And uh, Matthew is in Salt Lake City, Utah. And what he says is the following. He says, hello, Aaron. In HEMA, you can't do everything. I can't study and learn all the weapons from all the systems. As much as I would like to, I can't. No one can. With that in mind, what are your thoughts about setting aside one system to pursue an entirely different system exclusively? What caveats or advice do you have? These two systems have no true overlaps as well. 
Uh, in this case, setting aside Messer and Longsword in the early Lichten Artrician for Vulgar Destreza. Uh, below is my more background, very rambly. Okay, I'll not get into that, but let's just address some of the basics of this question um, so that I can then come back to maybe some of his more rambly stuff. But it's actually not rambly. It's, it's quite interesting because it talks about his background and stuff. Um, but essentially, it's, it's this. Okay, so let me just explain how I run it in my club and uh, how the how the WHFA functions as far as like all the different clubs because there's a lot of variety uh, and variance in terms of how we all operate. And then I'll kind of try to target it in on what I'm talking about versus like sometimes the problems. Um, so when you first start, start out in HEMA, like let's just pretend you're an instructor, pretend uh, you're running a club and you have this new person that shows up and wants to practice. So we'll take it from two perspectives. First, the perspective of the instructor, and then the perspective of the student. And that's an important uh, thing, an important distinction to make and to look at and to examine and really to think about, especially if you're that instructor. But anyways, from the instructor's standpoint, I mean, you cannot initially begin teaching a, a new person in HEMA, you know, all the weapons. If you, if you are one of those instructors that's like, oh, we're going to start uh, learning a little bit of everything from a number of different weapons or from a group of weapons, I've seen that done sometimes, and sometimes it works out all right, but for the uh, simplicity of um, keeping, you know, traditions and styles and uh, methods and terminology kind of consistent, it's best if you start the student out with one weapon, and then at some point along that journey, whatever point that might be, you start branching off into other weapons and other styles and other systems. So, so here's how... Um, the WHFA does it in Appleton. So all the students start out with longsword. Um, the reason why they do that is, uh, well, there's a number of reasons, but the main reason is it's, it's just the way we've decided to do it, okay? There's a lot of different ways that you could do it, and some students, frankly, come in and they're like, oh, I don't want to learn the longsword. I want to learn a different weapon. Well, that's important for me to know, but at the same time, I'm still going to start them at least initially with a longsword and then branch, branch them off per, perhaps quicker. But generally, everyone has to start with a longsword. And in fact, that's what your first level like ranking test is in. Um, the reason why I'm doing that is because when that student comes through the door, I'm looking at them as a potential instructor someday. So I'm, I'm saying to myself, uh, you know, as an instructor of HEMA, I really believe in the idea of we are beginning this art anew, we are starting this in such a way that we are legitimately recreating what, what once was to some extent, even though we can't know exactly how that all went down. But at the same time, like, is the longsword an important part of the European HEMA tradition? Yes, it is. Is the longsword something that a lot of people generally are interested in? Yes, it is. Is it something that to have conversations with people who are involved in HEMA, either locally or internationally, you should probably know something about it. Yes. Is the longsword one of the weapons that's like the most uh, marketable in many ways? Yes, it is. You know, there's a lot of movies with longswords and a lot of interest in longswords. So that, that's kind of my point. So the longsword, even if you don't want to pursue it later on in your HEMA career, is still one of those things that you should really know about because... Uh, our formatively, our early masters really spend a lot of time on it, um, even though it branches off from there. But it's one of those things where, you know, you should have a firm foundation, at least knowing about the weapon, 
knowing about the different masters that teach it, knowing about some of the variables and variances in, in their discussions regarding the weapon, etc. So, plus, it just, it just frankly makes it an, a more seamless kind of system so that we can bring everybody in. Everyone has a, a standard set of, um, like a baseline, a, a home base, if you will, and then we can branch off from there. And I'll talk about how that branching off occurs. But um, so those are some of the reasons formatively for that kind of weapon. Um, so as an instructor, I want them to learn the longsword first. Um, now everyone's journey is a little different. And frankly, it's, you know, in HEMA, we don't have a process of like, quote, weeding out, quote, people, because I don't think that's something that we're interested in. We don't want to weed out people. We want to be more inclusive of people. Think about the idea of the three tracks and having everybody involved to a certain extent, depending on their abilities and their passions and their, you know, money and their um, free time and all that kind of stuff. So we want to be a little bit more inclusive. So people might think initially, like, well, just by having everybody do the longsword, isn't that exclusive? Like, isn't that exclusionary? Isn't that saying like, oh, you're coming here because you want to do the rapier, but we're going to force you to do the longsword? And and again, my point going back to what it is I'm thinking about regarding my hopes for that student is that my, I hope that they will keep this as a lifelong interest and I hope that they will develop into an instructor. So I need you know them at some level along their progression to have some basis for understanding in the longsword. So yeah. Uh, I'm happy that they have those specific interests, and uh, the WHFA Appleton does have other classes to address those things specifically, but our general classes for new people, longsword. Now, there's a ton of different masters out there to choose from, right? So it's one of those uh, other problems, it's kind of problematic and formulaic, but like, well, what, what master do you have them study? Is it, are you going to take them just from three to two, three, uh, two, 27A, or you're going to do it just from Meyer, or I mean, is it Ringek? You know what I mean? Like Talhofer, uh, Fiore, right? Italian system. What system, what master are you going to focus on? Frankly, every instructor is going to have a different opinion and a uh, different interest and different passion, and whatever that is, that's fine. In the WHFA, we kind of have a general thing where it's not any one specific master per se. It's a little bit more Meyer-esque, but also it's also quite a bit of Ringek. So it's one of those things where I take like Ringek, Danzig, uh, 3227A, I take uh, a little bit of Meyer. I take a little bit of everything and I give them like this introductory thing, right? Because there's there's differences in, in many of those manuscripts, isn't there? There's a difference between 3227A and Meyer in terms of forming plow and Vomtag and some of the other positions, right, and other conditions. And there's different mentalities behind some of these these things, yet there's also quite a common thread running through this Lichtenauer tradition. So I, I have a very specific system in which I teach. It's a, it's a conglomerate kind of idea. I, I show them and introduce them to some basic things, and I try to keep to what the general uh, consensus is amongst the leaked in our tradition in terms of the masters as far as what they're teaching for positions and things. Now I give a whole seminar actually and I'm, I'm due to give one in Minnesota this coming weekend but the the seminar has to do with uh, I take a look at the differences and the variations between 3, 2 to 7a and um, like the rest of the tradition frankly and there's a, a number of key differences in terms of how 
that manual is forming some of these basic guards and also kind of the the way in which they explain those positions. And I think it's really telling because even though like 327A advocates uh, advocates for plow being formed at the point on the ground, right, and over to the side almost like in uh, boar's tooth or something, like a retracted boar's tooth versus, um, you know, ring ek, which is, you know, have the point in plow with your wrists crossed and point facing the, the, the face of the person you're fighting. And again, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but for anyone who's um, aware of those manuals, they'll understand immediately what I'm talking about. There are some very specific differences. And what's cool about that is those differences have less to do with how those guards are used and more to do with just how that master chooses to explain those positions and what you are uh, threatened from those positions by, right? So in here's a, a good example, quick, plow, right? In position of the plow, whether my point is facing the ground or whether my point is directly facing your face, what's the immediate threat of plow, that position in that, in that configuration? Well, it's, it's cutting to some extent, but it's mostly the, the point, right? So even if it's in boar's tooth, my measure is now hidden a bit and, and retracted and contracted. Uh, oh, and by the way, also my point is below usually your sight line if you're not paying attention to what's below. And you can really thrust up quickly and aggressively with that point. So in plow, the concern for the opponent is the point. And that is the whole intent behind being aware of plow and what to be concerned about. And then the... Uh, the solution to plow, right, being the shield. So that's one of those things that uh, is a longer, more technical discussion. But so you understand that um, there's tons of differences, there's tons of variances, even in the Lichtenauer tradition. So you've got to be careful and be concerned about that. The one thing I'm always curious about is when, you know, a more... Uh, a more uh, new person in HEMA or somebody that's maybe doesn't have quite the experience level as far as like, you know, less than eight years or so who says like, I, you know, I solely only study 3227A um, and that's all I've ever studied and that's all I'm going to study. It's like, okay, I, I kind of understand the intent behind that concept. Like I'm going to just study this one manual and be be the best student I can of this one manuscript. That I think is important for us in HEMA as a community. Like it's important that we have those, those subject matter experts who can detail exactly every single quote out of 3227A and really spell out all these differences. We need that, right? But at the same time, I'm always curious, like, well, if you do 3227A solely, then why am I seeing you use plow with your point up? Because that that's clearly not discussed much in 3227A. Um, or if it is, it's like coming out of a play or coming out of a later uh, change. So, you know, why aren't you forming your plow uniformly with the point on the ground? And then they'll say, so, well, you know, <laughs> they'll always have some kind of, and I'm not saying this is Matthew, by the way, that uh, asked the question, but I'm just saying I've, I have had interactions with people who do this kind of thing, and I'm always just kind of curious about it, but I don't want to call anybody out or anything. You know, everybody has their their jam, you know, and it's it, whatever speaks to you, that's that's fine. I don't think there's a problem with that. But I think it's generally more healthy 
to be aware of the breadth and scope and the differences and the similarities in a lot of the manuscripts if you're studying a certain tradition. I mean, even if we get crazy and we want to really extrapolate things, I mean, the ideas between Fiore and the leaked in our tradition, you know, they're, they're different emphasis and uh, some different positions, but, you know, it's still kind of uh, all the same bag for the most part in many ways, you know, just different emphasis. So is that right? Is that wrong? Yeah, there's no such thing really. Now, so when I am presenting this stuff, I do like to tell the student, look, you're going to be super confused. Fencing is not typically what I view as a ladder type of approach. In other words, it's not like you start in one rung and then go to the next and the next, and it's all very seamless and very clear, right? Uh, that's what students want. They desire that, and they're looking for it, and they'll almost like press you into it. They'll say like, well, what about, you know, the, the basic forms? Can I just focus on the basic forms? And then I can worry about footwork. And then I can worry about fooling. And then I can worry about leverage. And then I can worry about timing. And it's like, okay, yes, you can. And that's fine to a certain extent. But if you want to level up, right, if you want to get better, then you have to look at this as like a wagon wheel, right? In the middle of the wagon wheel is you, right? And outside, all these spokes exist. Those spokes are footwork, our leverage, our pressure, our timing, our measure, our, you know, all these the techniques, the concepts, those are the spokes and they radiate out and they form this surface. That surface is what makes contact with the ground and makes this wheel roll, right? So that's, that's how I have always seen different types of legitimate martial arts. The martial arts out there that really have some kind of firm footing in, in, in anything real and anything that is useful in combat usually is like that. It's, it's kind of hard to explain in a way unless you take up the sword and, and uh, go to a heme instructor that is worth their salt and um, start taking lessons, you'll start understanding that Oh, this this is not like just super uh, laid out and specified in terms of like a, a ladder approach where it's all super clear and very simple to understand. And I just learned this step, and now now I can do this step. You kind of have to take take each a little each little step as like I said, one of those spokes, and learn it for a while and understand it's important. But then understand the next spoke is equally as important. Great footwork without any understanding of blade work or fooling is worthless, right? Uh, same thing with fooling. You understand fooling and you understand, you know, measure, but you can't step for, for, for a damn. That's, you know, that's not going to be great. You're going to have a lot of severe handicaps. Sometimes I'm chided by some of my other instructors because I don't spend a lot of time on footwork. And it's not because I don't think it's important. It's just because, frankly, like right now where I am in my instructor life, um, I have other instructors that are at the club that are more passionate about the specificity of footwork than I am. And I haven't really disclosed this to many people, but I have been working on some different ideas for foot, footwork in terms of how they directly relate to historical dance um, and ballet. Um, there, there actually are a couple HEMA clubs like in Europe that have uh, recently re released some some footwork and motion video, which I'm super excited about because it's exactly 
the way in which I've been thinking about footwork more uh, recently. So I've been privately practicing and studying a different type of movement in conjunction with different hand positions on the sword that I'm starting to release in terms of some ideas. I just recently did a quick little seminar for our WHFA group in Racine under James Riley, and I released uh, two different types of hand positions in relation to specific techniques which I think uh, go hand-in-hand, tongue-in-cheek. But the point is, it's hard to get away from these tongue-in-cheek sword references when we're talking about this stuff, because you're always like, the point is, did you get the point? You see the point, right? But I'll try to avoid that stuff for the most part. Um, But it's one of those things where I'm, I'm seeing important variations in hand positions throughout the entirety of our tradition, and... Hardly any of us spend a lot of time discussing it or working on it or specifically relating to these different hand positions, um, especially as has to do with the thumb of the lead hand in relationship to strong, I'm sorry, long and short edge or true and false edge. Um, And I've been doing a lot of studying on that topic, including um, discussing with uh, some curators of some museums in terms of their collections, getting access to any existing, what we believe, are historical, uh, original grips um, and the wearing patterns on those grips in relationship to hand position, which I've been studying now for probably three years. And I'm very close to releasing that material in terms of what I think, in terms of what I've found, uh, what I suspect. Um, and I think it's it's pretty interesting stuff, especially when you think about the fact that so the European longsword, in terms of its basic cruciform shape, right, is is multi-directional. So it doesn't matter like which edge you draw, um, especially if you're in a hurry or something and not really paying attention. You just draw your sword in a quick in a quick reaction. Um, that sword, no matter which way it's faced, right, is is usable. Now, if you put a ring on there, you put some kind of um, um, yeah, a ringlet or some kind of side ring or anneal or something like that. You put something like that on there and now you've, you've kind of limited it in terms of which edge uh, fronts and which edge is back, right? Because now it's got a specific way in which it's held. So all those things are very important when you think about the use of a weapon when it comes to like real world self-defense um, for for saving life or taking life kind of moments, right? Um, and it tells you a lot about the use of the weapon, about its about its nature, and um, I'm kind of excited about that. But you know, I'm a terrible writer. I'm not really bad writer. It just takes me a long time to write because I just don't do it much, um, and plus I have extreme limited time. So that stuff will be coming out, um, and. Ultimately, I think it's going to be very um, useful and interesting, especially for those that really see the utility of it. So let's talk about from the point of a... So so where I was with this was with the instructor, right? We're trying to make other people instructors. We're trying to give them a sense of like a common system, not specifically spending any uh, time on one master or another. That's just the way I do it in the WHFA until they reach a certain level. So once they've kind of taking in that information and we get them doing drills and exercises and get them learning the basics of of some of the different positions in terms of guards and transitioning to different guards and things like that, being comfortable. Um, then they take a test and that test is called the free scholar exam. 
And what that means basically is just that they've kind of, you know, become used to, become comfortable with, can teach those basic things to new students coming in. It's our first level like in-house club instructor position. And um, once they've attained that, then it, the the name says it all. They become a free scholar. And basically I kind of encourage them and want them to take up different masters or different weapons or different uh, passions and run with them. Um, in our school, we have a number of different uh, systems or masters or weapons being studied. Uh, I mean, it runs the full gamut from we've got uh, one Italian um, person, Tim Hayes, who uh, did his senior free scholar prize play, essentially like became a black belt, you know, in our school uh, by fighting exclusively with Morozzo's system of uh, sword and dagger, I believe, you know. So, you know, he's our Italian kind of... Uh, guy who's interested in doing the Italian schools and stuff. And yet he still studies the longsword as well and, and can handle himself with a longsword without any problem. Knows a lot of Germanic longsword traditions. So again, he's already got that base established of that as his foundation. And then he can branch off from there. We've got um, uh, Sean Morgan doing the, uh, the quarterstaff stuff with uh, Meyer. We've got, you know, Sam Street doing sword and buckler of all different types. We've got uh, Jack, uh, who's also studying a lot of things. And I'm not going by name by name, but the point is we go from, like, you know, Italian uh, sword and um, dagger all the way through staff and rapier and, you know, small sword and uh, single stick and saber of a number of different masters, um, on and on. And that, that's the way you develop that. But I really believe, and I've come to learn, that you still need to have a, a solid foundation to, to start everybody at. So everybody has like a sense of belonging to a base. Then it can, it can branch out. And I think those schools that don't provide that or don't um, have an outlet for people who are like, oh, I really wanted to learn Destreza or something. Or I really wanted to learn about saber or you know i've got this massively you know burning passion for you know flail whatever you know for for people who kind of exist in those schools where they don't have that as an outlet i think it can be extremely frustrating and i think it can be one of those things that's kind of pointless in a way like there is an easy way to develop an outlet for those people by just giving them a little floor time, a little floor space or, or whatever. I, in other words, I think the answer, the solution is very simple. If you're just willing to let them explore that space and, and have a little bit of ownership in that. A long time ago, I decided, you know, cause seeing, uh, coming from a different school where like everything was under one guy, I realized very quickly that, you know, that one guy was drowning, whether he realized it or not, he was drowning and he was backed up to a wall, and there was no way that he's, he's going to be um, growing. Um, so I recognized that very quickly. And um, getting out of that school and then starting kind of my own, I thought to myself, I need to fix this issue so that it doesn't affect any of the other uh, issues that can go along with learning martial arts, right? Because just learning martial arts by itself of itself is difficult, right? It's not simple, otherwise like everybody would do it, right? And I'm not even talking about the interpersonal relationships that can kinda conflagrate things sometimes, right? What I'm talking about is just learning the physical skill sets, 
getting through the minor injuries, you know, forming your body's tendons and muscles um, to allow for this kind of behavior and this kind of systematic movement, oh, you know, the, the ego issues, the confidence issues, the, the time, the money, all these things, they can all have an effect on, on someone's desire, someone's passion, someone's availability um, to learn this stuff. So anything I can do as an instructor to kind of help that process along, I think is important. Now, the one caveat I suppose to that thought is it also can be problematic when you've got that person who's like into everything, right? And, and hasn't really learned anything well. They're just kind of toying around with every system under the sun. I've had a couple students like that in the past. Uh, they're no longer with me, which is telling. But my point is, and I, and I mean they're not even practicing anymore, but the point is, is uh, those persons are searching for something. What are they searching for? Well, a lot of times they're searching for their own passion. They're searching for their own sense of, you know, ooh, I'm excited. It's like the, you know, the squirrel idea. Like I get a little bit sometimes even during my podcasts when I kind of go all over the place. But the point is, is they are searching for something and they are not finding it. And so they keep searching. And that's that can be very problematic. Now that can be a little different from somebody who's just experimenting with a bunch of different things, but then still spending a lot of time on their original project. So um, I do have a couple people too that even though they still are studying longsword in a disciplined way, they're still they're now starting to experiment with other weapons and trying to figure out what what else they might want to pick up. You know, that's a different idea altogether. And I think you folks can understand and discern the difference in terms of what I mean by that. But you have to kind of be careful. Um, there was a guy one time I had who, I mean, every single day he came into class, he was bringing up some new master, bringing up some new weapon, uh, making all sorts of different weapons out of, you know, PVC pipe and everything you can imagine. I mean, every single day was like two or three new things they wanted to pick up. And I'm like, you know, you, you don't even know the basic four guards yet very well, you know. So can we just like focus on this base first and then start exploring other things? And um, when I helped to develop the uh, historical fencing affiliation uh, rank structure, that's one of the things I kind of inbuilt into the system, um, which, by the way, another caveat, we are going to discuss that um, in another podcast pretty soon. Um and I do have the charter here. I'll probably just discuss a couple articles of it quick at the end of this podcast. But um, so the whole idea was, you know, just, you know, focus in on this base and then we explore, right? That's, that's just the way to do it. And the rank structure of the HFA has that concept built into it so that you're guaranteed as somebody who belongs to a club belonging to the HFA that once you reach a certain level and it's recognized by your peers and your instructors, you are allowed, you are encouraged. In fact, we, we hope that you branch out and pick up a new master, pick up a new weapon, develop in that, and then bring that back around. Once that process has taken hold, um, then you become a scholar adept. Now, what that means for a scholar adept is that that person has taken up, like, well, I'm just going to use Sean as an example. You know, Sean was like, hey, Aaron, I want to I wanna do more quarterstaff stuff with Meyer. I'm like, cool. Great. You know, that's actually a lot of people ask me for that kind of instruction. And, you know, while I can fight with that weapon just fine and I know a lot of its techniques and tenets, I don't spend a ton of time practicing it. Right. That's a different thing. Uh, just like Jeremy Pace and I, when we did uh, Side Sword, 
I mean, I know the first, second, third intentions. I know about these systems and techniques. I have read that material. I'm aware of it. I can kind of pantomime it and, and copy it and look the part, right? I know what the concepts are. I just don't do it a lot. So I don't have a lot of practice in it versus Tim Hayes, who, you know, was able to to take Jeremy to, to, to um, you know, and give him a challenge, right? So it's that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's a whole different topic. But it's one of those things where, like, just knowing the techniques, knowing the, the forms and stuff is not enough in a martial art. This is why sometimes I kind of, like, chatter about mm, how to approach this um, properly. But I kind of chatter about, like, in seminars sometimes, the difference between somebody who just, like, shows me a bunch of techniques. It's like, okay, great, you know, that's cool, I appreciate that, I understand that. But really, what I'm interested in seminars is not just show me the techniques in terms of what you think the techniques are, but how it is it, how is it that you're practicing them? What tools, what uh, methodologies, what games, what drills, what things have you developed to turn me into a martial artist with it? Not just a collector of techniques or a technician, you know, there's two different thoughts to that. Um, and I, I'm firmly in the camp of more of the martial artist idea. I want repetition. I want different stress tests. I want different games I can play. I want different drills and, and skills. You know, I want all this stuff and not just to know, well, to do his work, it's short edge, you know, wrists at this position, this, you know, it's like, great, that's important. But that's, for me, for somebody who's giving me a seminar or something like that, that's just not enough, right? So, but I digress. All right, another, uh, another thought, another thought. So, the other thought is this. Now I want to look at it from the standpoint of a student coming in and learning, right? From a student's viewpoint, like, they, they are searching, you are searching as a student for some kind of repetition, some kind of pattern, some kind of understanding of what it is you're expected to do. How, how do you get better at this? What art are you learning? You know, which tactics, which techniques are going to be of use to you in sparring or in drilling or whatever? So you're looking for that sense of, you know, great, this is awesome. I want to learn how to use a sword. How do I go about that? So as an instructor uh, and as a student, you have to form that relationship so that you can clearly understand what's expected of you from the instructor as the student, right? And then try and perform that. One of my favorite ways to do that is just simply to have them kind of like stand next to me and follow my motions and what I'm doing. You see a lot of young people being trained in this way. And this, this we actually see it in our manuscript. There's a couple images, um, especially the ones I'm thinking of are in Meyer, where there's a, uh, like a master who's standing in position and there's a young kid who's like trying to form that same position and looking at the master to to copy what the master is doing and how he's standing. And that's that's exactly the thing. Like having them just follow and do exactly what you're doing, it's historical, we see it. We know it works, right? To, to copy each other's movements and positions and things. And um, there's a lot of value to it. Yet there are many times too when I see that um, it's, it's kind of an ad hoc procedure where you know, these skills and drills are taught in such a way that it's kind of whatever we feel like tonight. 
Um, and that can be problematic. And certainly, I have to give this piece of advice um, for anybody who's who's going to be a student. If you go into that club or you can go into that class and that there's a bunch of instructors just kind of standing around and they look at you and they say like, well, what do you want to do today? Eh, you know, wrong answer. That That should not happen because what a student wants and needs is direction. So if the student is giving the instructor direction, that that is a uh, cart before the horse kind of concept. That that is not something that's going to be sustainable, and it's not something that I would ever suggest. Now it might be a little different if you know. Usually there's some kind of pattern, there's some kind of direction given by the instructor to the student. But let's say it's kind of a strange day, or let's say it was like a weather event, and only like a couple people showed up, or it's an extra training session. Um, or it's a, certainly a solo training session that's different if it's like personal training or something, then, then it can be a little different where the, the instructor might say to the student like, hey, where are you struggling or which areas are you most confounded by? Where do you have the most confusion? You know, that's a little different um, thing altogether. So, so let me get back to the question. Um, so in Hemi, you can't do everything, he says. Um, I can't study and learn all the weapons from all the systems. As much as I'd like to, I can't. No one can. With that in mind, what are your thoughts about setting aside one system and pursuing an entirely different system exclusively? Well, hopefully I've addressed that throughout almost the entire um, thing I'm talking about. I think it's fine to study a specific thing for a specific set of time uh, for specific reasons. I do caution a, a person who says like, I'm only gonna study this master for the entire, you know, for my entire HEMA career. I just caution you because throughout the entirety of the manuscripts, throughout all, the whole tradition is kind of where the art really is, right? Like it's clear, I think in many ways, and I, and I think most of the uh, academics would agree that the art lives in the breadth of the, of the uh, manuals, right? And the breadth of the history. It's, it's not just enough to study one manual the entire time, even though that, that still would produce pretty good results. My, my point, I suppose, is that you're kind of taking one and excluding the others, but in the others, there's a lot of information that can help extrapolate the one. So I always talk about whenever I study other um, when other weapons or other like a good example is small sword right now. I'm obsessed by small sword, and I I love Anglo in terms of that approach. And I'm seeing all sorts of things in my long sword fencing, which I'm now looking at in a kind of a different light. So every weapon, every master I study, kind of illuminates the others in such a way that if you're open to it and you you really and really try and grasp the width of this art, it starts illuminating more things and more concepts for you. Almost to a point where you can now take it back to the one master you're studying and kind of understand it better. So that's that's what I caution people about. Like, So if I'm answering that question, um, those are my thoughts. Um, be careful about setting aside other systems just to pursue one, right? Uh, what caveats or advice do you have? I gave that. Uh, these two systems have no true laughs as well. Okay. So um, 
Let me just take this first paragraph he writes regarding some of his rambly background, he says. Uh, he says this, quote, I've been working almost exclusively from 3227A for almost all of my practice of HEMA so far. After reading Godino, uh, I feel like his expression of destreza is something that I want to learn and apply in fencing and competition. So much so that it is outweighing my inertia to seriously, he has that in quotes, study Lichtenauer. As in, I would still fence Messer or Longsword. I'll still love the system, but the weapons, primarily Messer. I'll practice the fundamentals at home, maybe non-seriously, compete once a year, <clears throat> but devotedly studying and practicing the Lichtenauer tradition will likely be cut, uh, put on ice for the foreseeable future. Hey, great, you know. Um, if, that, if that's the way you want to take it, um, go for it. You know, there's, t there's a lot of people out there that get passionate about one aspect or another of the HEMA tradition, and that's important. That's something that we need to be honest about and say, like, okay, even though I have this foundation in Lichtenauer, um, now I'm going to learn uh, Italian system, or now I'm going to learn something else. Great. You know, no problem. Become an expert in it. Take, take your passion in that one area and let your base inform your movements forward, right? If you, if you look at the progression of these weapons, it's kind of what we're doing, right? We take even those sword and buckler, you know, the 133 and stuff, that's technically the earliest as far as I'm aware of, as far as the recent, um, the recent um, um, arithmetic of the whole thing. But it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, longsword I think is meant to be a foundational weapon in many ways. There's a reason why it kind of falled out of favor, out of fashion, um, I'm sure that reason has a lot to do with uh, the development of different weapons and different ideas of fighting, but it's one of those things where it's great to have that longsword as a foundation and then branch out into other things, depending on how your passion takes you. One of the worst things we can do for ourselves in HEMA, I think, is just like pigeonholing ourselves in one particular way of thought or one particular system, because it's important to take a look at everything. Because even if you're passionate about the one system, like I'm, I'm very passionate about Lichtenauer, yet I recognize yeah, we don't know who Lichtenauer is, right? We don't really know what he is. I, I used to have this theory like the Ulfbert swords, you know, those Viking swords that have the Ulfbert uh, in, in engraving on them. Like there's no doubt there, there's some smith out there who's like, I'm going to put Ulfbert on this sword. And then everyone knows it's my quality sword. And then everybody's like, oh, you've got an oof bird. That's so awesome. And then some other person's like copying it in the shed, right? Not wanting the first oof bird to see his oof bird sword. And then be like, see, this is an oof bird sword. Right now I can charge you more. So it's one of those things like, who really knows? Like I used to think like maybe there really was never a leaked an hour, but somebody just created this grandmaster in their mind to say like, oh, well, this grandmaster taught me this system and he traveled many lands and he, you know, can... He conceived of all these things, but put them together in such a way that it was packaged and presentable, right? And teachable um, and recreatable, right? And now, now I'm passing it on to you. Well, who knows, right? It's like, like, you know, like Shakespeare. We don't know who the heck Shakespeare really was, right? As far as I know, or do we? I don't know. Point is, like, we don't really know what marketing strategies these folks used or even had to use if, if they were doing it. We don't know what was driving them necessarily to learn this stuff other than, hey, you know, I want to be manly and I want to present myself in a certain light and belong to a certain class and all that kind of stuff, right? 
There are a lot of these motivations that go hand in hand with these manuals. One of the things that really pointed this out to me was when I actually had my hands on the Telhofer manuscript and I'm paging through it. And I'm starting to realize as you page through it, you know, I wish they would include uh, in some of these, um, these copies that you see of Telhofer and some of these other manuscripts, I wish they would include the whole thing, right? Because a lot of these manuscripts that they're presenting as fencing manuscripts are excerpts from larger materials. Uh, and in those manuscripts, you see like, oh, there's ideas of alchemy, there's ideas of astrology, there's ideas of mathematics, there's ideas of just crazy religious, you know, stuff and all sorts of, you know, crazy concoctions and um, dream monsters and all this kind of stuff. So like many of these manuals are not just manuals on fencing. They're manuals on like stuff that's cool, right? So you start to see that when you're looking at the full breadth of these manuals in terms of what they're all putting together and why they're keeping it, right? There's a reason why it's special. It's a reason why it's different. It's a reason why it's worth spending all that time and energy to write down because it's kind of cool, right? I think of myself, and actually I was just having a conversation with a couple other uh, members of the club en route to, to uh, Racine where we were talking about this. And I'm like, you know, I remember as a kid... Go, I used to um, play around uh, railroad tracks constantly and seeing all these railroad cars go back and forth. And I remember I actually um, wrote like a comic book of all the different train cars um, and the special graffiti that I was seeing, the different types of graffiti. Like I, I wrote down this book about it. And I remember feeling almost like a, a sense of like magical connection to this book. And every time I would see those cars go by, I had these like little stories for each of the cars uh, and the special graffiti that was on those cars, like where the graffiti came from, what it actually meant, you know, who it was talking to, who it was talking about. And the person that actually did that graffiti, you know, has no idea that I'm creating all these stories about what it is they put on those train cars, right? For them, it's an expression of themselves and their world and how they view them that but for me, it's a whole different, different thing entirely. So, we, you know, I'm wondering, like, is, the, is that kind of what's going on here sometimes with these manuals, you know? I think about that especially when it comes to Fiori. Like, um, I just, I see a lot of that kind of idea in there. Like, look at me, I'm taking on five guys with my longsword, you know, and I defeat them all. It's just like, okay. I'm sure that's the case, you know. I don't want to piss off any Fiori people, but... I'm just thinking to myself, like, man, eh, I don't know how much, you know, practical use that information is, but whatevs. It's all good. So, uh, the last little bit on this topic is, uh, this paragraph, he says, of course, this also means starting up my own study group or club. I'm going to leave it there, okay? So, yeah, you know, I guess it depends, right? Doesn't it? It depends. If if you're in a situation in which your club just prohibits you from exploring other other passions or other arts or whatever, then maybe you do have to start like your own side thing so that you can you can explore what you need to explore. The other route would be I would I would just ask to sit down with that main person, that main instructor and be like, "Look, you know, here's what I want to bring to the club because you already have a ready-made audience, you have access to things." The big, the big problem for that main instructor is going to be, 
you know, like uh, liability, profitability, all that kind of stuff. As somebody who started out as just kind of like a laid back, like let's get together and kick the crap out of each other to like joining a thing and then developing a new thing and now having to think about, you know, having a, a stone mortar brick place that I'm going to have to pay for. It's one of those things where like, you know, these these things, these concerns are legitimate and, and they are something that someone who doesn't have to worry about that stuff, doesn't really think about. But just just go to them in honesty and just say, like, how can we work this out, right? Like, there's going to be some things you'll have to give up and some things you'll gain. But if, if you know, if that doesn't...